Hi and welcome to Preserving Palestine by Grazie Middle East. Wait, 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 Lian, isn't this uh, yeah. Yalla Let's Talk? No, I'm pretty sure it's Preserving Palestine. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, how about this? How about it's Yalla Let's Talk x Grazia Preserving Palestine? I can do that. I like that idea. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Yo, let's change it up a little bit. Maybe we ask each other questions. I like that. So the interviewer becomes the interviewee. Mm, okay, let's change it up a little bit. This is a podcast remix. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. So I'm gonna start off if that's okay with you, Mr. Hani. Yeah, please. So I want to know how did you first start your podcast, Yalla Let's Talk, and why did you start it? Ooh, so it's interesting because I'm getting that question like quite a bit, but a lot of people don't know that Yalla Let's Talk as a concept, as a show, as an initiative started back in 2017, in August 27, 2017, before podcasting was even a thing. The concept was really to try to create a show and really change the, the narrative of the people in the diaspora. And from there, even though the concept of the YouTube show didn't really work out, we started doing events and we started rallying our community together, started off in Toronto, and then it started growing in the US and in the UK um, and of course in Canada. And so long story short, during the pandemic, we couldn't have events, started creating content, started doing some more digital media. And uh, after one year, it really started growing. Yalla Stock became Yalla, which is a media entity. And Yalla Stock was creating content. And I was like, what better way to bring it back to its full circle? and actually just have those conversations happening one-on-one uh, -on -one with people in our community all around the globe. I love that. And I love the name as well. Yalla Nehki. Yalla Nehki. That would be like the spin-off if it was like uh, in the Bad Arabiya. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious now, I'm going to flip that same question to you. Like what inspired you to start Preserving Palestine? What inspired me to start Preserving Palestine? This is so weird getting interviewed. I'm usually so like used to being the interviewer, but um, let's give it a shot. So the inspiration behind Preserving Palestine is really in the name itself. You know, it's the motto that I've grown up with my entire life, just to keep preserving Palestine. And, you know, ever since I was a little girl, um, I've been told so many emotional and personal and you know, heart-wrenching stories from my parents, from my grandparents, from my extended family, who some still even reside there. And they would just share their stories so much. And I guess why I really wanted to preserve Palestine is because it sometimes feels like, as a Palestinian, and I'm sure you can relate as well as, you know, a fellow Palestinian, it sometimes feels like the whole world is trying to erase us. So I want to do, you know, the antithesis of that. I want to do the opposite of that and preserve our identity and our culture and our stories and our heritage and celebrate them at the same time because there is so much to celebrate, you know. And, and yeah, I wanted to do it in a way where it's not just about politics, you know. Um, I often you know, lose respect for people that always tell me, like I've, I've been asked a lot of times when I invite people to be as a guest, they often ask me, can we refrain from talking about politics? And I go like, mm. 
as a Palestinian, you know, it's in your essence, in your blood to be political. And that's not a bad thing. But at the same time, I wanted to do this podcast in a way where it's okay to get political, but it's also um, just a platform to celebrate different voices from Palestine that are really making a difference for their communities, for the Palestinians in Palestine and in the diaspora, uh, like yourself, you know, and... And yeah, just celebrate that. I love the inspiration behind this. For you, it was more of like an identity aspect as well. It was... Oh, 100%. Yeah, these conversations and stories, you're able to validate yourself as, as a Palestinian and the history of Palestine, which I think is remarkable. It's interesting you mentioned about the politics because this was something that uh, on a personal level, I've always struggled with because at, whenever you state that you are Palestinian, you cannot escape politics, especially here in Canada growing up. Uh, so I empathize with people who are like, you know what, maybe I'm not very well versed. Maybe I'm not the best spokesperson. Like, you know, respectfully, you see people in the media, in mainstream media, who do represent Palestine, who are Palestinian, who might not articulate it very well. So it's like, maybe let's stay away from that. I'm curious for you, why was that? Why is it important? to talk about politics or to bring that into the forefront on the podcast? Because it's inevitable. We can't escape it. You know, it's at the core of the fight for our freedom. It is political, but behind the politics, behind all of that. And that's why I hate when people keep, you know, trying to refrain us from talking about politics, because what is politics at the end of the day? It's the lack of human rights. It's it's all of these things. And these are things that we have been facing for for years, you know, since 1948. And politics is important because it's in my blood to be political, as it is for every other Palestinian, whether we like it or not. You know, it's not like I enjoy politics. Um, fun fact, I was actually going to study politics at university. And my father told me, why would you do that to yourself? Do you think you're going to one day free Palestine? And then I asked myself, you know what? He's right. Politicians aren't the people that are going to free Palestine. It's people that are shedding, you know, light and truth to the actual occupation and what is happening in Palestine that are going to have the best chance at freeing Palestine. And that's how I got into journalism. I wanted to be someone that, you know, spoke truth to power. And so back to your question, it's inevitable to be political if you are from a country that some don't even believe exists. You know, it's in your blood and it's in your essence. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. It's nothing you should be ashamed of. But behind all the politics at the end of the day, it's about the lack of human rights. That is what we are fighting for. So I wouldn't say that, you know, I am a political person, but before being political, I'm a humanitarian. That's what's most, most important. I love that. And I love the fact that you equated politics with Palestine is really a conversation about human rights in Palestine. And those two are, are equal. Exactly. They're intertwined. So back to you. Um, I know that you're also a full-time lawyer. So I want to know how on God's earth do you have the time to manage and balance between both? So it's funny you ask that because like this was a question a lot of people would ask me back in the day and I'd be like, you know, it's it's tough. There's challenges. And obviously there are. And I feel like there's challenges in anything you do. Uh, but what I I find remarkable in 2023 
is that you can wear so many different hats. You can be a CEO, an author, a lawyer, a doctor, or maybe not a lawyer and doctor. Maybe you can, but that would be a little <laughs> intense. But like, you can have so many different passions and, and interests and careers that you strive for. And I think for me, it's just learning how to manage my time and building a team that can, uh, that's able to support all of these things. So, you know, Yalla is not a one-man show. We have an amazing team. Same thing with Emerge Law, my law practice. We have a team, you know, we're a small team of lawyers, but we're very powerful. And at least that's what I like to tell, you know, my clients. <laughs> and, uh, and we just go from there. So it, it's fun, especially when you enjoy the work that you're doing. Uh, you find the time, you find. Yeah, I mean, they say if you do something that you love, then you, you wouldn't consider it work anyways. So it sounds like you do. Absolutely. Like I look at people like Elon Musk, for example, <laughs> like this guy has so many companies and I'm like, you know what, you know, it makes it sound like a breeze. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he also has a billion people working under him to help out. But <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? But you can have teams and do different things as long as you're able to yeah. structure it uh, in a way that's conducive for you. And as long as you're enjoying it, I think that's the number one thing. I think if I wasn't enjoying the law side or if I wasn't enjoying the media side, uh, then my answer would be very different. Uh, but it's really cool. It's really cool that you can be you can wear different hats and do different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's also useful because people tend to, you know, get sued a lot when they work in media. So <laughs> I guess uh, you've learned a thing or two and you can, you know, defend yourself if you ever do. Have you ever gotten sued? Have I ever gotten sued? So... No, <laughs> I have not. Got a suit. I was like, I thought that was gonna was be like, a yes. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm like, I don't even know if I would even say it if I was. I'd be like, but, it, <laughs> but no. But oh I yeah, have, you you probably wouldn't be able to tell me if you ever were. Well, if I if it at least in Canada, if it goes to the court system, and there hasn't been like you know a, a way for it to not show on records, then you would see it. But I have not been sued. I, uh, as a lawyer, I you know I've dealt with litigation however i'm a corporate lawyer so for me the, my bread and butter is actually it's uh working with people to build their companies and obviously there may be some uh some issues where we have to go to court but for the most part it's it's always good news because i was like i'm buying this business i'm expanding i'm merging you know so it's a very different vibe mm -hmm. so i have a question for you Liam. so we talked about what inspired you to start preserving Palestine. And you talked a little bit about some of the topics you um, have on the podcast. I want to know, and I think everyone wants to know, who was the worst guest you've ever had? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I want to ask you, <laughs> what is the most powerful statement that resonated with you on your podcast from a guest? Oh my God, this is so difficult. The thing is, I mean, we're now on season two and the first season was months ago. So I need to like, you know, recollect my thoughts on every single episode. But one of, I'd say, the most powerful statements that resonated with me was from my last episode uh, with a fashion designer. Her name is Mira Albaba and she's based in Gaza. And... I asked her about, you know, what it's like to, 
Um, I asked her about the support that she's received, if any, from, you know, um, news outlets and and not just in the region, but um, in the West as well, if she's received support through news outlets or publications or so on. And she said something that I really, really resonated with. And she said, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, butcher her quote, but she said something along the lines of, I am Palestinian, but I'm not just Palestinian. I'm also a fashion designer. And she was trying to explain how people tend to, especially in the West, but even, you know, regionally, unfortunately, people tend to put you in a box of, okay, you're Palestinian, you're based in Gaza. Let's forget that she's a designer. Let's forget everything about her, except the fact that she's Palestinian. Let's only give her a spotlight when it's, political and when it's the woke thing to do you know so like now with everything going on in palestine uh you'll see uh, and i guarantee you this you'll see around several media outlets if they even support palestine 10 fashion designers from palestine you have to support and they put you in a collective box with other you know palestinian designers and it's like why are you only shedding light on me now when there's something happening in Palestine? Why can't you give me the spotlight because my talent is there and I deserve it, you know? And I really related to that. And it tends to only, you know, happen to minorities and people that are, you know, marginalized because you won't see articles about, 10 British fashion designers to support now and forever because, you know, you, you probably already know them <laughs> to start with. And secondly, they wouldn't be con constrained to those, they wouldn't be limited to those terms of being a British fashion designer. They'd just be a fashion designer. But with us, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong, we are proud to be Palestinian. I'm proud to be a Palestinian journalist. But at the end of the day, I want to be given accolades and be represented as being, you know, good at my job, not just being one of the best Palestinian journalists. I want to be one of the best journalists worldwide. Why can't we, we compete with the West? Why can't we compete with the whole world when it comes to that? So that is something that really resonated with me. Very interesting. Uh, because I get what, uh, you're, where you're coming from and where Mira, is it Mira? Where Mira is coming yeah. from as well. Because, you know, you want to not just be associated uh, just by, you know, your cultural group. You have talents, you have potential that go well beyond your cultural identity. Uh, it's interesting because the, the work that we do in Yalla is really trying to amplify and it's actually the opposite of what you guys are saying. And the way we see it is uh, is a little different because in the way that the media systems are structured, at least here, is that there are biases and there are, there are situations where this talent is overlooked. But when you have these initiatives internally that are not just based on a specific season, but are things that are proactive, that are from grassroots initiatives, from organizations, from media entities that are being built and ecosystems that are being built, then you can amplify them. Then they, you know, you amplify Palestinian artists. Then once they've, you have established Palestinian artists, then like, then it's like 
they've become mainstream. And I do feel like um, the second part of this, uh, and this is just my own opinion, is that I've noticed as well for a lot of thought leaders is that when they become really big, they do actually, people forget the fact that this is their cultural group and they just associate them as mainstream, which I think has its advantages, like a double-edged sword. You know, there's advantages that, wow, like this person is, you know, a journalist and one of the best journalists in the world. But when you don't associate that identity, and again, this is just my opinion, it, um, we lose an opportunity to show representation. So, for example, like, like I'm thinking right now, like Ahmed Shehabedin, like journalist, Palestinian journalist here. I see him as someone who's mainstream, but still claims his identity. So I feel like at least every Palestinian journalist that I've met in this young, in the young generation, they all look up to Ahmed because they associate, you know, him as someone who's who's paved the path for them. I love your points. I have to agree. But the thing is, your first point is that, you know, you were saying that what you guys are doing is the opposite, but I don't think it really is. I think you guys are doing something else entirely because your organization is at its core Arab owned and for Arabs and, you know, not just for Arabs, but I mean, you are doing this with the Arab identity in mind. But what I am trying to explain is that when the West puts you in a group of just Arabs, you know, would we do, a, would you do an article or a podcast or any type of, you know, outlet or media, media, um, content based on the best European um, journalists or podcast hosts? No, you wouldn't, you know? So that's what I'm trying to get at is that when it's, especially in the West, they tend to group us in these uh, little boxes and it sometimes does more harm than good. I mean, it's still great representation, of course, but I just think that especially when they do it only to sound woke, I hate that word so much, so forgive me for using it. <laughs> but um, when they do it just to sound woke, when there's something happening in Palestine, it's like, okay, you're just doing this as a form of tokenism. You know, you don't actually care about supporting Palestinian artists. You're just doing this to act like you do, to pretend that you do. I couldn't agree with you more. I think tokenizing is so harmful. And that's when... Mm -hmm. And I do think I agree. That's I think what you guys are referring to versus uh, actually shedding light and amplifying people of color in different minority groups and giving them a platform. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So um, you asked me about one of my favorite, you know, uh, lessons that I've learned from my podcast. Now it's your turn. What do you think? Because, you know, you've spoken to such a wide range of people and not just Palestinians, but, you know, so many incredible guests you've had. And I want to know what's the biggest and best life lesson that you learned from one of your guests. Ooh. So I'll answer this part in two. Uh, the first thing is that I want to just share the lesson that I've, I've noticed every single guest that I've interviewed so far. And this was like the overarching theme. Every single guest said this pretty much the same exact thing in terms of the work that they do and what inspires them to do the work. And very rarely do you find that the answer is them or like elevating them. It's really about a, like a greater purpose. It's about 
something that they want to achieve in the world and make an impact from a worldwide. So like different guests have said this in different ways, whether it's for community, whether it's for their, uh, whether it's for, uh, you know, a philosophy or, or a book that they've wrote. So that's kind of like the overarching theme, but from a specific, the second part is from another, like from a specific guest, and I'll start and preface this by saying, I generally did learn something from every single guest that has come to Yellow Let's Talk. I even learned something right now from you. So it's been amazing. Aww. It really has been amazing. Um, but I would say Nejwa Zabian's uh, podcast episode was truly remarkable. And I remember even interviewing her and having a conversation. I was in awe in most of the most of the time because she was articulating things that I never really considered or thought of. And some of the messages um, that was mentioned on the podcast episode, which was titled Buy Yourself Flowers, uh, Trust Your Heart and Start Healing, was uh, when you start living your life for others, you're headed towards regret. I think that's one message that really resonated because it's something that I find very common in our culture is that we live for others as opposed to living authentically and what actually makes us happy. The second thing that she said that also very much resonated was it was also about relationships and uh, and it was in the context of romantic relationships. Uh, so especially at that time when we did the interview, uh, Flowers by Miley Cyrus was like, was blowing up <laughs> and everyone, everywhere you go on social media, everyone's like, I don't need no man. I don't need this person. <laughs> and I asked this mentality of being independent how does this impact healing and like connecting with others and she said something that also really resonated which was we are hardwired to gravitate towards people and connect with people it just has to be with the right person and i think that's where a lot of us and especially a lot of millennials these days uh, we gravitate sometimes towards toxic love and bad love as opposed to love that actually helps us grow and heal and and all that kind of incredible stuff. So long-winded way of saying, learn that number one, everyone has to have a greater purpose to achieve greatness. And the second part is Nejwa Zabian's episode about mm -hmm. living your life authentically and finding love that's actually good for you as finding people that are good for you as opposed to um, gravitating towards toxic attachments. Yeah, I mean, I can agree more. I'm obsessed with Nejwa uh, to start off with. And so you have to introduce me, I'm telling you from now. <laughs> and and I'm just such a big, you know, um, supporter of just self-love. And I am one of those corny girls that reads, you know, a lot of um, self-help books. And I love them. I can't get enough of them. I mean, Jay Shetty is one of my favorite as well. I think he's incredible and just how he words things is is really, really, really magnificent. And yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I also would like to add that, you know, everything you said is right, but I also think that one of the most important things uh, when it comes to any relationship, not just romantic ones, is how could you possibly expect someone to love you or how could you possibly love someone if you don't love yourself? You know, and that's, I think, the very first step to any type of relationship being successful. 
And if someone isn't reciprocating that to you, if someone is not reciprocating the same good energy that you're giving them, then they don't deserve, you know, to be in your life. Um, And yeah, I've gone through that so many times, more times than I can think of with friends, with family, romantically, everything. And, um, And yeah, you just learn with age, I think, as well, and with life experiences to love yourself more. And it's really true that when you love yourself more, you no longer will tolerate, you know, people that don't appreciate you and people that don't value you. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It reminds me of a quote that I read the other day is that it's not how you feel about other people. It's about how they make you feel. And if someone makes you feel you know, secure and validated and happy, then this is, you know, whether this is a platonic family, romantic relationship, those are the relationships you want to preserve. preserve. And the ones not so much, you, you know, goodbye. Yalla bye. <laughs> yalla bye. Hashtag yalla bye. <laughs> so Dean, we talked a lot about podcasting and we know that now podcasting has become a thing. Every person has a podcast, as my friends would like to say. Now, I want to know, why did you pick podcasting as your medium to creating content? And how do you measure the success of a podcast? Ooh, two very good questions. Um, Start off with the first one. I'm going to admit something um, that, you know, I might get a lot of hate for admitting. But before Preserving Palestine, I never listened to a podcast in my entire life. (laughs) Now probably everyone's listening and they're like, well, why should we listen to yours if you don't, you know, if you don't listen to other podcasts? But um, now I do. And I've learned a lot from them. And I just think that they are such a great tool to communicate something. Because, look, I'm a journalist. I love to write. You know, my main form of consuming media and creating media and content is journalism and writing. But um, when you want to, especially when you want to tackle a subject that's so complex and so, you know, I mean, it, you could go on for hours and hours and hours and take every single episode from Preserving Palestine. Each episode is minimum 30 minutes. Do you think anyone's going to want to read an article for 30 minutes? I don't think so, you know, and So I just think it's such an effective way to A, get as much content delivered to your audience in a specific amount of time. Secondly, I also think it's so impactful the way that it's done because podcasts aren't just interviews, they're conversations, they're dialogues, you know, and I really love to have conversations with each one of my guests. It's not just a Q&A, you know, I could just do that over the phone or, or by email, you know, why would I do, why would I go through the trouble and all the lengths of doing a, a sit down talk with someone? Um, so yeah, I just think that it's the most effective way to communicate in an engaging way and in an educational way as well, you know, because I do think that what we both have in common, other than the fact that we're podcast hosts and Palestinian, is the fact that the topics that we tackle are very complex and they can't be done in, you know, just a mere few minutes or or just by writing an article. And I think just also being able to hear a voice 
and also visually see something, you're activating more senses. You know what I mean? And the more senses that you activate, the more people are going to resonate and feel your emotion in your voice and and see it in your eyes with video. So I really think that it's it's just such a impactful way to get a message across. And as for part two, how do you measure the success of an episode? So I can answer this in two ways, because technically you can measure the success with, you know, the number of shares, likes, listens, views, so on and so forth. But for me, success, especially for preserving Palestine, isn't something quantifiable because finding success would mean that I'm educating and raising awareness as much as possible. So that's something I can't really measure, you know? I can kind of take a guess when I get tons of shares and likes and so on on the videos. Um, Like we've had a a few episodes that have gone completely viral. Um, But to me, it's not something I can unfortunately quantify because success is, is really down to raising awareness and... I can't really know how many people I'm, you know, educating about this that need it because a lot of these people already know about Palestine, which is still important. It's important for my audience that is Palestinian, that is Arab, to see that, you know, um, there are people like them being given, like there are people like them that are given a spotlight. But in terms of, yeah, quantifying it, I can't because... It just depends on how you would define success. You know what I mean? I love that. I I couldn't agree with you more on both of your answers, by the way. Number one, like, I think right now, medium of listening to audio is definitely a very efficient way to consume knowledge. And you see it with audiobooks. Like, I don't even remember the last time I read a book. I just listened to audiobooks, you know. It's, uh, it just makes the whole process to consume information a lot more efficient, a lot easier. Yeah. And then having the conversations is important. It's important to have dialogue. And I think this is something that has been missing in previous generations is uh, having more real people have these conversations where before the dialogue was always centered on celebrities or politicians. Now uh, people can hear these different perspectives and hear different stories as well. Evaluating success, I can't agree with that more. I think a lot of people are tied down to the numbers. And I ain't going to lie. Sometimes when I see like an episode that hasn't performed as well, I'm just like, oh, what happened? But then I remember it's not not just about the numbers. It's it's really a long-term thing. And as long as you're impacting even one person, one person who is going to actually take something from this and you're helping them, then uh, your job is done. At least that's what I think. 100%. 100%. I could not agree more, literally. Um, so I wanted to ask, speaking of podcasting and all of that, what's one of the most difficult things to you personally um, about ho- hosting a podcast? So I'll tell you this, and this is a little secret that I'm going to share about Yellow Stocks podcast. So you guys are ready for this? Mm-hmm. All right. So we actually shoot episodes back to back. We rent the studio for a day or two, likely two days. And right from the morning, I have an amazing team, HCM Productions, Hazem, come in, 
set everything up, and then from morning till evening for two days, we're shooting episodes. So the most difficult thing <laughs> is really keeping my energy as high and also the team's energy to to stay as high because it is exhausting. And the reason why we do it like that, because a lot of people are like, whoa, why would you just do it like that? Remember how we were talking about earlier about like figuring out schedules that actually work for you. And so you can do so many different things. So I can practice a lot. I can build other projects. This is the most efficient way, in my opinion, to release content. And you see this not just in the podcasting world, you see it in other forms of content where people can create bulk of content and then boom, they start releasing it. So to answer your question briefly is that energy level and just, you know staying motivated on that. But from another practical standpoint, I think uh, one thing that I find um, that I found challenging uh, would also have to be with making, finding the right balance between keeping the structure of an interview and still having it as a conversation. So this is, I think, something that a lot of podcast hosts may relate to is that you want to have a conversation, but at the same time, sometimes conversations go left, right, and center, and you just want to make sure that it just, it, it actually flows into the objectives you set up for the podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this one's flowing pretty well. I think so too. I want to actually flip that question to you. Like, what do you find most difficult about it? Honestly, the exact same things. I mean, I can record them, you know, almost whenever because I'm, I am, you know, a host of a podcast, but I also am a digital editor. So I have a whole, you know, job behind all of this. And for, so for me, it's, it's mostly about arranging times with, you know, the talents that I'm interviewing, because a lot of the times I want to interview people that don't necessarily live here in Dubai. So I will have to wake up in the middle of the night or a lot of times people will cancel on me last minute and they will, you know, postpone them. And it's just finding the the time to organize them and just going back and forth on what time suits you? What time of zone are you on? What time, you know, this, oh no, this time doesn't suit suit me. Can you do this time? Oh no, I can't. Just going back and forth can get really tiring sometimes and frustrating. And I, I'm sure it's the same for you, especially if you have to do them all within two days, having to schedule like, I don't know, five or 10 or how many ever in two days, you need to make sure everyone is available at that specific slot of time that must be very challenging as well. So yeah, I I think that's definitely the most challenging. And the other one is very similar to yours. I think, thankfully, you know, all of my guests really have been very, you know, engaging and it was very easy to converse with them and, and talk to them. But sometimes you will have people that will go on for, for, for hours and hours on one question. And you just need to kind of like remind them like, you know, try to cap it at like a few, a few sentences, because we will have to edit this down later on if it's too long. Uh, because also people don't want to listen to a podcast for like three hours, you know? So, um, so yeah, I think those, th- that those are the two most challenging things for sure. Very interesting. I feel like a lot of people will definitely relate to that. And I feel like, you know, it's, it's part of the journey. It's even with those challenges, it's still very fun. So mm-hmm. I want to now just shift this conversation and ask more about you. Because I feel like as podcast hosts, people don't really know a lot about us. And I, I think a lot of people want to know more about Lean, 
as a person. So who is lean? So interesting because I've never been asked this. Like, who am I? Where do I start? I feel like the first label that you give is like the the most, you know, the most one you identify as. So I have to be careful here. But firstly and foremost, I would say that I am a daughter. I am a baby sister. I am um, a friend. I am a journalist. I am a woman. And... I am, you know, just a very curious person, I'd say, um, really at my core. I'm very curious. And I think that anyone that wants to go into journalism has to be curious, you know. Yeah, I, I love, I'm adventurous. I love to travel. I think one of the main characteristics as well, I would say about myself is that I'm quite emotional and I'm very empathetic. And I think that's why I'm also very, you know, attached to Palestine, because just seeing my country going through war and occupation um, and being silenced for it for my entire life is traumatizing, really. You know, I think I'm someone that is traumatized as well. And that's not to say that the people that live there are not way more traumatized than I am, you know. So yeah, I, I, I'm someone that wants to make a difference in this world and I'm someone that will not give up. Even if, you know, I've, I've been told a lot of times, do you really think you're going to make a difference? Do you really think this is going to make a difference to Palestine uh, or to people, um, you know, from other marginalized groups? And I keep saying the same thing, which is if I don't try, then I'll never forgive myself, you know? And I want to be remembered as someone that, never gave up and dedicated her life for a cause. And yeah, I'm just, I guess I'm someone that has always searched for a purpose to my life. And I think I finally found it. And I'm so grateful that I did. And, and yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> I love that. I can definitely sense that you are a very empathetic person. And one million percent, you are making an impact. I think with every Thank episode you. you've done, you've shed light on so many different topics. So as a fellow Palestinian and as uh, someone who generally admires the work that you do and what you stand for, thank you. Thank you for making that impact. Stop it, honey. I'm going to cry. I told you I was emotional. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? I'm going to I'm going to use the same question. I'm going to cheat. Who is Hani Dajani? But wait, who really is Hani Dajani? <laughs> Who am I? We're going to get deep. So I would say, so this word, I find like it really resonates with me is that I am a dreamer. I genuinely don't think that there are limits to anything you can achieve. Um, and I feel like we just put these constraints. So I definitely think dreamer is one of them. I also think of myself as a, you know, someone who is Palestinian. Uh, and I think my identity, my cultural identity plays a huge factor in, uh, in how I think and the compassion that I feel, the empathy I feel towards human rights in general. And it makes me more of an empathetic person as well. So dreamer, Palestinian, I would also say I'm a son. Yeah, I am a brother. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I was gonna say I'm a friend. And yeah, and it was, and then last thing would be like podcast host, lawyer, and, and like all these 
<laughs> superficial things that how society perceives you. But yeah. I think at the heart of it is that there is this consciousness about us that flows. And I feel like who we are is really defined by our values, our aspirations, and our drive in this world. So I don't know if I answered 100%. that question. Yeah, I mean, you did. And, you know, speaking of that, I wanted to also touch base on the fact that, you know, you created a platform for Arabs in not just Canada, but, you know, in the West in general, because I'm sure a lot of people tune in to, to Yalla and not just Yalla, let's talk. And you're giving them, you know, a sense of community and... That just goes to show how empathetic you are. But I wanted to ask more about growing up in Canada as a Palestinian and as an Arab. Um, what was that like to you? I mean, did you ever face any discrimination? Did you ever feel, uh, I'm sure you did because, I mean, I grew up in the Middle East and I did, but <laughs> did you ever feel a sort of, you know, lost sense of identity? Is that why you started Yalla? So very interesting question. So I want to just start off by just clarifying one thing. So even though Yalla, our target market is really like when it comes, the first target market is the Arab diaspora community and, you know, Arabs as a population. We really are trying to be as inclusive as possible. That it's the way I look at it is kind of like how Latin culture or black culture has become more mainstream where everyone can enjoy it. And that's what we're trying. We're focusing more on the culture rather than, you know, like the ethnic background of someone. And, and the reason for that is now I was going to transition to my answer to your question is growing up, I didn't really see people who looked like us on TV. And I remember even like, for example, like when I saw DJ Khaled, I was like, yeah, Palestinian representation. And, you know, it was something that was incredible to see someone like DJ Khaled. Now we have so many different people in the forefront. You know, you have Rami, you have Mo, you have Bella Hadid, you have the Hadids in general. Um, and so what drove myself uh, to really start establishing this media entity is really trying to create that representation and changing that narrative. Now, growing up, so I grew up in Mississauga and if, anyone here is familiar with Mississauga, it's a very like ethnic based. So there was a lot of diversity. So it wasn't that we, that I felt direct discrimination or racism uh, on a minority level. I would say it was more muted. And obviously after September 11, things got a little heated. Like I still remember in the day of uh, the, like I was in class 9-11 and I have my classmates saying, Muslims are bad and Muslims have done this and that and that as a child, you know, who identifies as Muslim, you're like, what, what does this mean? What does this really mean for, am I a bad person? Like you're, and you start to have these, like, um, I wouldn't even say an identity crisis, but like you just, it just puts, uh, puts you in a situation that I don't think any kid should ever feel. And so that's also like how I grew up. But I would say the most muted racism that I face, and I use the word muted deliberately because I do think racism and discrimination can happen on different levels. But when you're when you're now entering the workforce and especially in professions that are predominantly not really um, dominated by ethnic communities, such as law, 
you start feeling like you are the other and you see how how even on from a systematic level how opportunities can present themselves for different for different people just based on race and color and as much as people may deny that and and these professions it does happen on a subconscious or conscious level so for example I shouldn't even be sharing this but I'll I'll tell you one one experience that I thought I faced while I was working at a, a law a big law firm or a relatively big law firm I would say in Toronto I so no one actually like checked this but I googled my name in like the the directory and they put me as affirmative action like I'm the only ethnic minority and I saw my my name I was like the like you know as part of their ethnic minority <laughs> initiative I was like I did not see that and I didn't know how I felt about it because like we were talking about earlier like you know they're trying to push more ethnic minorities but that felt like tokenization and yeah. and the systems that they've built was not empowering myself or any ethnic minority in the profession or in the firm to really climb up it was really the systems are being placed was was not and therefore you know i had to break out and started my own law practice and it's been four years now it's been the best decision that i've ever done in my life no i love that and you know you reminded me of the conversation we had when uh, i met you for the first time and we talked a lot about orientalism and um you know how the west perceives us and you know the fact that it was also coined by Edward Said fellow Palestinian um says a lot but um yeah i mean it's it's really so mind blowing when you see orientalism which is a book that was written i don't know 60 years ago 40 years ago i really don't know you, you see the you effects, see the effects of, it of it still happening happen till this day, till this day. Um, um and, one, and of them, one of them i think, I think you, know, you know has led to, to tokenism, tokenism as, well. as well and right. i've been also used as you know a tokenistic you know symbol um several times in my life um uh, being an arab you know um and i've also noticed that because i'm a blonde arab which isn't very common that happens even more just because you know i don't look arab but i am arab so i fit the criteria of okay she looks western she looks white but she's arab so that's two birds in one stone and it really makes you feel so bad about yourself um and yeah it's just i think an attempt at making us feel more and more insecure as minorities you know um when western powers do that i think and yeah i don't want to d- dive too deep into you know, the whole idea of Orientalism, but to everyone listening, if you haven't read that book, please do. Very interesting book and life-changing. Have you read it yet, by the way? Because you promised you would. You know what? I tried finding it on Amazon and there's like a million authors. So I think I messaged you. I was like, which author? Who's the author of the Orientalism? The OG, the OG author, Edward Said, Orientalism. Send me your address. I'm shipping it to you. Yeah, I got to <laughs> listen to it. So you have you made a lot of great points. I do think post-colonialism a lot of things have has impacted society, economies, um, and just how we are perceived in in that regard. I want to just dive into something because we're talking a lot about right now about ourselves 
And as a podcast host, you told us who is Lean and who is she really. But what is something you learned about being Palestinian that you discovered while you were doing your own podcast, Preserving Palestine? I don't think it's as much as I learned something, but it's more as I got, you know, confirmation of it um, is that all of us, all Palestinians are such, you know, I mean, I'm saying it with a smile on my face because it's something I'm so proud of. Um, I just feel like we're such nurturing people and we all want to support each other so much. And, you know, we're resilient. And I know people are probably bored of hearing Palestinians use this word, but it's true. You know, we never give up. And the other thing I think that I've learned is just how talented we are. You know, I've really tried my best to have a wide range of guests um, on the podcast. And I think I've accomplished that because just in the first season, I mean, we had a female model, we had a female chef, we had a male producer, a film producer, a director. We had um, so many different people and so many different, you know, backgrounds and and careers and, and industries. And it just goes to show how talented we are as people and that, you know, if we're capable of finding success um, in these careers, then we can find success in the fight for our freedom as well, you know, because I'm pretty sure it's it's pretty difficult to to become, you know, famous and to be like, I mean, look at Eliana, you know, she's an amazing human being, super talented. Shout out Eliana, I love her. Um, she's so, so, so talented and she's, you know, she's really making a difference, uh, just like every one of my guests have. And to be able to, to, to find success in these industries, um, especially in the West, I think, and to be recognized as being a Palestinian artist or chef or model or fashion designer or whatever it is, it just proves that we have so much that we're capable of that, you know, if only we had a platform, we can do, we can show the world more. And that's what I want to do with Preserving Palestine. I want to give that platform. I love that. And I love the fact that you touched on the diversity of so many different Palestinians, uh, because, you know, we aren't just one stereotype, one person. There's so many. We're not all podcast hosts <laughs> like you and me. <laughs> Some of us, uh, you know, are singers and fashion designers and lawyers and doctors and all that fun stuff. So mm -hmm. it's it's amazing. It's and I'm I definitely think it's needed. It's representation and representation yeah. matters because we know the power to be seen means people can see themselves. So one hundred thousand percent. I mean, when you see someone that looks like you or sounds like you or has a similar story to you. You, you see yourself, you know, it's a reflection of yourself. Um, and yeah, that's, I think that's also what we both have in common is that we didn't see much of ourselves when we were younger. And, you know, now we're, we're making sure that younger generations of not just Palestinians, but, and not just Arabs, but anyone that feels out of place or feels like they're a minority, um, they can, they can see themselves, they can see a reflection of themselves. And that's a beautiful thing, by the way, about media now in 2023 with TikTok and social media. 
like if you think about it you have entities and i'm going to say use that word deliberately like the kardashians now not having as much influence because thank god <laughs> thank goodness <laughs> but yo hot dig i actually like the kardashians <laughs> but <laughs> i'm questioning you now i'm questioning you <laughs> but it's like it's just decentralized impact and influence yeah. and creating content and having that representation if especially i find tiktok to be one of those platforms to generally is incredible because you know whoever you are the algorithm will direct you towards that community yeah. so if you're on arab tiktok you're going to see people who look like you and you know who who will get your sense of humor and you know vice versa for other communities and niches out there um Lean, I want to ask you something. It's my turn to ask you. Come on, honey. <laughs> You've been asking all the questions. I think you forgot that we're doing like a two-way street here. It's not just I'm not a, just an interviewee. I'm also an interviewer. I do apologize. I, I was just like I was so intrigued. It's I wanted fine. to ask more. I'm glad I'm intriguing you. <laughs> but you're intriguing me too. So I want to know since we're, you know, talking about the topic of Palestine. I know obviously that you are also Palestinian. Can you tell me more about your family background? Where in Palestine are you from? Have you ever visited? So on and so forth. Yeah, so Palestinian, both my parents are from Yaffa, Beit Dajan, and uh, unfortunately after 1948, the Nakba uh, both my, I want to say ancestors, but ancestors, but I was really my grandparents. That's how short of a period of time it was. Uh, moved to Kuwait and settled there. And from there, that was my upbringing. I was born in Kuwait. But what a lot of people might not know is that I actually was born with travel documents, like a watiqa. So I think to me, the easiest way to like, illustrate what awathiqa means to someone who is like non-Arab in Canada. I'm like, yeah, I was a refugee. If I say that to my parents, like, no, we weren't refugees as if this was like something very negative. But if you think about it, it really is like we didn't really have a home or a place and Kuwait welcomed us. But I think my parents realized at that point the, um, the hurdles and the barriers you're going to have as someone with without a passport, right? And it's, it's, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's hard to say that. Um, cause you know, you expect everyone to having, you know, some sort of nation that they belong to and a passport and a country that will protect them. And that's where my family or why my family decided to immigrate to Canada. Mm-hmm. And you said something that's really interesting. Cause I feel like a lot of, especially older generations of Arabs, um, have this like stigma around being labeled a refugee. Like it's almost aib or like it's, it's, you know, no, 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 we're not refugees. How do you feel about that? What is a refugee, right? I think we got to first define that. It's a person who has been forced to leave their country in order to escape, right? So we are refugees in the pure definition of it. It's the reality of it is that refugees, and unfortunately it has become something that's prevalent in the past 10 years and and people associate it with, with poverty, with like this sense of, hopelessness so you feel this patronizing element when it comes to the word refugee but it's not it's if anything it's something that should be used as something empowering you know we're existing we're living um 
And you know what? And that's a you know hashtag. We got to change the narrative on even how refugees are portrayed. There's refugees here in Canada, like Tariq Haddad, came from Syria, started a chocolate empire, right? So there's so many success stories. So to answer your question, I'm proud of the term refugee. It means we've escaped and we're living and we're existing. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. I couldn't have worded it, you know, any better, honestly. Nothing to add to that point. Hats off. <laughs> okay, now it's my turn to ask you a question. All right, let me ask Let me ask the other podcast host this question. Okay, we talked a lot about preserving Palestine. We talked a lot about you. We talked a lot about what you've learned uh, about yourself while doing this podcast. I want to ask you, what do you wish people knew about you that hasn't been shared on your podcast just yet? So I think the one thing that people don't know that maybe it's about time they do um, is the, the real reason I started this podcast. So obviously it is to preserve Palestine uh, because to me, it's not just the name of the podcast. It really is my life's motto since I was born. You know, I've been wanting to preserve Palestine. But it's also that it's so much more personal to me than people might possibly imagine. I get a little emotional every time I say this, so bear with me. But um, it's actually my mother's story. Um, and I never wanted to share her story because I never felt that it was mine to share. But last month, we actually hosted an event here in Dubai in honor of the season two launch of Preserving Palestine and also in honor of International Women's Day. And I invited my mama to come and be a panelist where I, you know, asked her about her story in Palestine in front of all of our guests. And I don't think anyone left without crying uh, or dropping at least a tear because it was very, very emotional. And that's exactly why I didn't want to say it myself. You know, I wanted my mother to say it. And trust me, I begged her to come on an episode. She doesn't want to. <laughs> my relationship with Palestine is very, very, very deep. And to be able to hear these stories, not just from strangers or influencers on Instagram or people that you look up to, or even your ancestors or your grandparents or your aunts or aunts, but to hear these stories from your own parents is, you know, it's gut-wrenching. And so, so yeah, that's, that's the one thing that no one knows, or at least most people don't know, that I have now shared. So, yeah. And I can't imagine like that was easy for you to share. It's uh, reliving those experiences and it's passed down trauma from you know your your mom and you've experienced it firsthand as well. And it, it really is sad to know that two things. One, people seem to forget that Palestinians are indigenous to Palestinians. You can label it whatever you'd like. You can have different entities, but even within countries like Canada and the US, Australia, there is indigenous rights and we don't have that. We were kicked out because of colonialism, because of systems and abused till this day. Because of apartheid as well. Apartheid. apartheid. And the fact that you just said that they just ripped off uh, the, the idea, is it idea or the idea? It just shows 
how fragile even our existence in our homeland is. And that's why I feel the need to preserve Palestine because so easily they can rip it up. You know, I technically have absolutely no proof that I am Palestinian. My nationality is not Palestinian. I don't have anywhere, any cert- like certificate or documentation that says I'm Palestinian. But for as long as I breathe, until the day that I die, I will keep screaming and shouting at the top of my lungs, I am Palestinian. And I really hope that every other Palestinian does the same because that is the only way we are going to preserve Palestine by not allowing people to eradicate us and to eradicate our existence and to eradicate our history and the martyrs that died and lost their lives for us to still be here. It would be a disgrace to them to have lost their lives for nothing. And that's why we need to do all that we can to keep preserving Palestine. Absolutely. And I think it's something you said that really resonated is Palestine is within our blood. Uh, Just because, you know, a piece of paper doesn't say we're Palestinian does not mean they can just erase that identity. And I think when it comes to the world, and this is the biggest misconception that I'm trying my best to deconstruct. And I know a lot of people in different ways, everyone is trying to deconstruct. Palestinians does not and like all the rest of the Arab world are not the same. We Every culture has its unique traditions, our homeland, our history. And, and this is the argument that's always used is that, you know, all oh, their Arabs, they'll, they'll go to Jordan. You know, it's not, it's, there's so much more to that. Uh, and I really appreciate you sharing your mom's story and your story as well. Thank you so much, Annie. Thank you for asking me and thanks for giving me you know, a safe space to share it. I think that's really important as well. Well, I think that's all we have time for, unfortunately. But it was such a pleasure hosting this podcast with you. So thank you so much, Hani. And thank you to Yalla Let's Talk. Well, thank you very much, Lean, And thank you, Preserving Palestine. Bye, Grazia. My name is Lina Saadi, and we thank you for listening to this episode of Preserving Palestine by Grazia Middle East. Tune in for a new episode next Wednesday.